Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you're enjoying this content, you could subscribe to my newsletter, theconsumervc.substack.com to get each new episode and more consumer news delivered straight to your inbox. Our guest is Brandon Yan, co-founder and partner of Convivialite Ventures. Convivialite is Perno Ricard's venture arm and the second largest wine and spirits company in the world. Their focus is to invest in technology companies that are changing the way people socialize, entertain, and change their experiences together. We discuss his approach to thematic investing, how he thinks about strategic and non-strategic investments, and what particular areas within consumer technology he's fascinated by. Without further ado, here's Brandon. Brandon, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? I'm uh, doing really well. Thank you. Happy to be here. Yeah, everything's good. So what was your initial attraction to technology and innovation? I studied industrial engineering when I was an undergrad. And, and one of the principles there was around process improvement. And it's something that's embedded in kind of how I think about the world overall. So generally, you know, for me, always trying to learn new things, figuring out how to make things better. And I think in consumer in particular, I'm interested in understanding changes in consumer behavior, how technology can lead to new business trends. So I think that's kind of just been in, embedded in how I think about the world generally around, you know, how technology and innovation can can change and make things better. What led you to, to end up in San Francisco and also working in technology? And why, when you thought about process improvement, why did you think about the whole uh, tech industry? Yeah, so I ended up in San Francisco originally because uh, I went to business school at UC Berkeley. So I moved out here originally just for business school. Generally, I always had an interest in, in startups and entrepreneurship. I worked for my dad's small business as a kid growing up in West Virginia. And for me, I saw Berkeley as a way to build a network within Silicon Valley in the startup and VC ecosystem. I saw that this is really the hub. And, you know, back in 2010 when I initially moved here and, you know, still very much is today. And then when I got to the Bay Area, just dove right in. I led the entrepreneurship group while I was at Haas at business school. I uh, interned at Evernote when they were still a very small company. I worked at Foundation Capital during my MBA program. So really just I tried as best as I could to, to build a network uh, here in the Bay Area. And then, you know, I stayed after that to kind of start to build my career, ultimately took a job at a startup uh, where I was based out of San Francisco called Data Logics, and, and then I've been here ever since. So for me, I think, you know, just being around, I think technology in general, to me, going back to the idea of process improvement, it's basically helping to make things easier, more convenient, better, more efficient. So, you know, I think around kind of this ecosystem is exciting because it's always changing. And you're always finding kind of, you know, new ways to do stuff. Totally. That's great. It seems like obviously going to business school in San Francisco, um, obviously it's a great introduction to then just being immersed within the technology scene and also having experiences as well, working for very early stage startups and understanding that experience as well as working on the VC side. So you got to experience kind of both sides of the table. What made you then want to actually go on and actually found your own company? I ultimately started my own company around student loans and helping people there. So I was working at the time previous before starting that on, on some new business initiatives at Credit Karma. And one of the areas that I built out for them was a student loans vertical. When I was looking at just the magnitude of the student loan problem in the U.S., 40 plus million people have student debt. I think that the total outstanding loans now is 1.7 trillion. I just saw that many people were struggling with repayments, didn't know that there were solutions to help them save money. 
for example, uh, you know, a lot of people could either refinance their loans to lower interest rates with, you know, using companies like SoFi or people that are struggling with student debt, you know, couldn't find government assistance plans to help them that were there that could help them lower you know, their monthly payments. So I built out a product to basically help people better manage their student debt, find solutions to help them save money. You know, I ultimately tried to, to kind of sell this product into universities, but, you know, it was, it was a long sales cycle. So it was ultimately a bit of a struggle kind of getting that business kind of beyond where I was hoping to, to build it originally. But it was it was a good experience on dabbling and building my own company and, and in entrepreneurship. Totally. Has that experience helped you out as an investor? Yeah, absolutely. I think more than anything, I have, I think, a lot more empathy for entrepreneurs. I understand how hard it is to build a company. I also understand, I, I, I probably learned more from that experience and really even, you know, I've worked for, you know, a couple of fast growing startups and, you know, obviously learned a lot from those as well. But, you know, I think surrounding yourself with the right team, with the right group of people, having complementary skills and really choosing something that you have a ton of passion for and that you're willing to work on for the next, you know, five, 10 plus years of your life. And so, you know, when I look to invest in, a, in an entrepreneur, I want to see that they, you know, are obsessed with the problem that they're solving for their company. I want to see that, you know, they have the perseverance to kind of grind through, you know, the ups and downs of all of that. And yeah, I, you know, I think it just helps me relate much more personally to the entrepreneurs that I work with having gone through that experience. No, totally. So once you realize that, okay, these sales cycles is way too long and maybe this financing company, maybe it's not going to work out. Did you automatically think about maybe go back to, because I know you, you used to work at Foundation Capital. Did you think about, okay, maybe an investment role might be the next stage? Or were you also thinking about, well, maybe since you were also an early employee at, at tech companies, maybe also maybe stay, staying on the operator side? Yeah, so when I was, you know, wrapping up my own company, I was interested in what was generally out there. I've always had an interest around venture. I think it's super interesting. I like the variety of meeting different companies, learning about new businesses. And I think also being an employee at a, you know, at a fast-growing startup is, is a lot of fun, uh, and you learn a lot there. But in that experience, you go much deeper, you know, into a specific company or a certain expertise. So, you know, I was starting to look at both, and then I, I came across the opportunity where I am today, and I thought it was just too good to pass up on. Absolutely. So how did you develop a relationship with Perno Ricard? Yeah, so for me, it actually goes back quite a bit. So I started my career in management consulting out of New York right after college. I worked with a lot of clients around food and beverage, you know, big brands, and Perno Ricard was one of them. So I worked on a few projects with Perno back then, including, you know, after they made one of their largest acquisitions and they bought Absolute. And I found them just to be one of my favorite clients to work with. It's a fun industry to be in and to be around. And then at the time when I was looking for what was next, I reconnected with Pernell through one of, a mentor of mine, a guy named Paul Holland, uh, who was a longtime partner at Foundation Capital. He was an advisor to, to helping them create a venture fund. And I found out about the opportunity from him originally to come on as the first employee and to basically help to create the fund. That's amazing. So why did Perno want to create a venture fund? What was kind of like the origin story there? Yeah, so I think this is kind of what attracted me to the role. So I think it's super interesting because Bernard Ricard historically is known for being a large wine and spirits company. You know, I mentioned brands like Absolute, uh, also like Jameson, Glenlivet, etc. But the company has this broader vision uh, that they could say the creators of conviviality. Conviviality is, is really based on this idea of sharing experiences together. So the vision of the fund when in creating it was to look beyond the core business this broader vision of conviviality and, you know, looking at the future of social experiences, entertainment, hospitality, and the goal was to invest and partner with, with businesses in this area really is kind of diversification in some way for the, for the company. I thought that was kind of a super interesting 
angle and and what attracted me to the role. That is interesting. So with that being said, does that mean that you won't look as much in terms of a beverage brand when it comes to investing? Since I would imagine if you were looking seriously at the company was more so in like an M&A type capacity. Is that kind of the, the thinking as well? Yeah, we have kind of expanded areas that we'll look at over time. We tend to say, you know, the core business historically has grown from you know, things like M&A or, or building some of our own brands and, and specifically around wine and spirits. So we, we kind of let the core business continue to do what they're good at and, and let them focus on that. We are looking at things that could be, you know, alternatives to the core business uh, in, in beverage. I'd say it's not kind of the core focus of what we're doing day to day, but we do kind of look at, at things kind of outside of the core in general. And, and if something in beverage may fit into that, then, you know, we, we would also take a look at that from a venture team point of view. I know that your space and your focus is consumer experience, or maybe one of your focus is consumer experiences. What are maybe some examples that you right now are very interested in or different sectors that you're looking closely at? Yeah, so we've segmented kind of uh, areas of focus from a high level into like four or five kind of themes. So within that, we have one we call real life social network. And this is the, the, the concept of enabling kind of fun or social experiences with other people in real life. Obviously, COVID, you know, you, you would think maybe had an effect on that. But, you know, we've still seen strong performance in a lot of our portfolio. So there we had companies like Avance Day or, or Fever or Outdoorsy. Another one we call Redefining Retail. So that's kind of following the evolution of e-commerce or delivery or experiential retail and how that affects our business in some way. So there we have investments like Zola, Glovo in Europe or, or Chow Now. Another we call distant togetherness. So this is the idea that people are, are creating social experiences online or, or not when they're necessarily in person together. So there we have Wave, which is like a virtual concert company. We're in IRL, which is like a group uh, chat and, and kind of event planning app. And then another is home entertainment. So there we, it's basically enabling fun experiences at home. So it's generally something, you know, we've seen within our industry. So there we have investments in Common, which is a co-living company, Peerspace, which is a marketplace for event spaces. And then finally, I think that the last one, going back to, you know, your question earlier around beverage, we have this concept that we call conscious hedonism. But this basically is following the trends of within beverage. If people don't necessarily want to drink alcohol what is it that they're looking for? So, you know, following trends overall and better for you, health and wellness. So we have an investment there in Liquid Death, the canned water company. Within those kind of major themes, we obviously break those down and have a bunch of different subcategories that we look at. And as we ask kind of what are interesting areas for core business, we'll continue to kind of segment and, and go deeper on you know specific areas. But I think that's kind of our, our guiding area for deal flow, let's say, as a starting point. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, are you, do you consider yourself it seems like you're fairly thematic, if that's fair to say, and that you do have specific areas of focus within consumer. What happens if you meet an entrepreneur that you maybe love, but their idea might actually be outside of your core focus? It depends on how outside of the core focus it is. I mean, if it's a you know, great entrepreneur that's building the next healthcare company, it's probably not going to be a fit for us. But if it's around our space, I think, you know, we're always considerate. So I think we're both, you know, thematic and opportunistic. You know, as I mentioned, we have specific areas that we look to invest in. And, and in those, we'll, we'll do research or deep dives or reach out to companies. But we see a lot of other opportunities, you know, through our VC network or our founder networks. And we can be opportunistic and move quickly on, on new opportunities as long as it's not, you know, too far away. It kind of just depends on exactly what the company's building. But we are overall thematic, but we're happy to, you know, if we find a really amazing company that we think could be a fit, in some way or another, even either now or in the future, we're happy to consider that. Yeah, so you're thematic, but you love to be surprised. You don't mind being surprised. Very, very cool. Very, very cool. 
How has COVID impacted the way that you invest and also just different categories that you look at? When COVID first started, I, I was actually a bit concerned that it would have a fairly negative effect on our portfolio companies because we are driven around this theme of you know social experience, entertainment, hospitality, you know all industries that at least from a macro level seem to get hurt. However, I think our portfolio companies did a really good job of pivoting. So ones that were doing in-person events switched to virtual events, or ones that were you know enabling something in person created something different to help people online. Like IRL is a really good example of that. Or even like even on the travel side, we have a couple of travel companies, Avantstay or, or Outdoorsy, both boomed during COVID because each are serving kind of a getaway experience. So, you know, people were more escaping cities and looking to still have a fun experience, uh, just, you know, not around as many people, maybe with a closer, cir- closer circle, more outdoors or whatever it might be. And so we saw, you know, I think a lot of strength and just, I think, luckily, I think we've backed some good entrepreneurs that were able to react quickly and, and figure out a way to, to, to deal with that. And then I'd say, you know, the other piece is we have leaned in a bit more to this concept of, you know, distant togetherness. So of course, people are, are spending more time with each other, you know, over the computer or the phone or whatever that may be. And that's where we've looked into things like, Wave, uh, which is doing live stream uh, concerts. And I think even, you know, for us, we're keeping an eye out just generally on, you know, how people are building kind of social relationships overall, you know, more and more online. But I do think people still yearn, you know, our our whole kind of idea upon starting, people still yearn for in-person experience. And I think that that's coming back. So I think in some ways it almost helped us diversify and think more broadly about what is this, the social experience overall, both, you know, in person or, or online and, and help us kind of have a, a better view of each of those kind of independently. And, and sometimes even some companies are doing both of those together. Cool. Cool. How as well as you have you since deals, it seems like are just flying. I mean, evaluations are, are kind of through the roof. So much um, activity. It seems like almost every day there's just so much activity happening. I mean, of course, during COVID, you can't meet founders during person. And so you have to, and with the market going so fast, you're going to have to make decisions quite quickly. Has this at all, this current market, how it really has accelerated, has this affected at all your decision-making process and how quickly that you're able to actually reach decision? It can. I mean, myself, not coming from the corporate world and coming from a startup world before joining, I've tried to kind of institute as many policies or friendliness uh, from the startup world. So I've always tried to make sure that, you know, we're not a slow moving corporate that misses deals. I try to make sure that, you know, we kind of move quickly, but we still do a pretty thorough diligence process. We meet with founders, you know, multiple times. We'll build our own models and our own projections, discuss ways that we could work together. We'll try out the product. We'll talk to other investors, et cetera. But yeah, I mean, we have to condense that and we have to do that quickly. You know, right now I'm doing diligence on four different companies and, you know, each one I have to kind of assess which one is moving faster than the other and let's prioritize one over the other. It also helps if we're friendly with the other co-investors, but, and it also depends on the check size. So like if we're going to write a smaller check, maybe we don't have to do as, as high level of diligence on a company, but you know, we still need to do, I think some level of diligence, we need to look into, you know, data for the business to make sure we're making, you know, responsible decision. But yes, we try to move as fast as possible. And if that means, you know, working extra over the course of, you know, a week or whatever that is to, to make sure we get a decision when the founder needs it, that's what we'll do. And then I think to your question on valuation, it's crazy, I think, right now, uh, especially compared to being in this industry for you know a decade, just to see how valuations have, have, have moved up quite a bit. I can remember 10 years ago, if somebody had a billion-dollar exit, that was like the biggest deal ever. Now you see you know, a billion-dollar company every other day, or you know, multiple billion-dollar companies you know, coming every day. So, I mean, I think we can't sit on the sidelines and say valuations are just too high, so we have to react to the market. We still have to make sure 
we're making good decisions based on you know the analysis that we do based on the market conditions and you know if something seems a bit crazy based on the calculations or or multiples or comps that we make we probably still won't do it but if we just say hey this is what the market looks like today and this is the valuation this company would command and then we want to be part of it then you know we'll we'll still make that investment no that's good to know and i guess since you are quite separate from Pernod Ricard's uh, core business, then, then you're actually able to make come to a decision quite quickly then, right? We are employees of Pernod Ricard and we invest on the balance sheet of Pernod, but you know, we operate pretty independently from the core business. You know, we started the venture group in San Francisco so we could be in the startup ecosystem, not in Paris or New York, you know, where which is closer to the core business. So yeah, I mean we we try to operate pretty independently and that allows us to move quickly. And then, you know, if we had to rely on, you know, getting a decision from from corporate on everything, we may miss out on certain deals. We definitely, you know, still try to get feedback and, and try to make connections into our brands or core business where it makes sense. But if we see a really good opportunity, we see like, you know, this company is onto something. It's our job really to be on top of kind of the consumer trends more so than it is, you know, the, necessarily the brands and who are you know focusing on you know, growing their business day to day. So, you know, we can move quickly. We have an investment committee that responds very fast. Uh, so I think that's that's helped us and has been an advantage. That's great. What is your also your typical check size and at what stage you typically come in rounds? Yes, we're pretty stage agnostic. We've invested across almost every stage at this point. You know, I'd say our sweet spot is really kind of series A, B, and C. We've gone later as needed, or more really in follow-ons on our existing portfolio. We'll, we'll continue to, to invest in companies as they continue to, to invest later. And we've gone earlier just on things that we think are kind of interesting and, and unique. So I think we've also grown, I'd say, our skill set as a team. You know, we started, we were just, you know, we say we'll kind of focus on one area, and then we continue to expand and broaden both from sector, stage, geography, you know, since we since we created the fund. And then on check size, it varies also. We tend not to lead. We've co-led a few times, but so we say we, we fill out a round. We've written checks all across the, uh, many different ranges. So we've as small as, you know, a few hundred K to in the tens of millions in later stage investments. Is it harder, since you are a multi-stage fund, is it harder to invest at multi-stage instead of the focus on a seed st- only a stage stage fund or only a series A or only a, a series A fund? I don't think so. I think actually we're more thematic than thesis driven than stage driven. I do think it depends if you're if you're raising from LPs and you say I'm only going to do a certain type of risk profile investment, which is, you know, I know seed really well or I know A really well or whatever. That's kind of your duty to an LP. That's what they expect you to do when you raise money. For us, we have much more of a thesis driven, you know, we, we like companies that fit into a certain type of business. It's going to create kind of something, you know, big around consumer technology in general. And if we see them early, great, that's ideal. That way we get, you know, more ownership and, you know, have, have more of a, see, see more of that growth. If we don't come across it till a later stage, but we still think it's a really, you know, great fit for our portfolio and we think we can be helpful, then we'll come in later stage too. And, you know, so ideally we see things earlier, you know, that would be kind of best, but we're open to finding kind of the, the right companies that fit our thesis uh, as opposed to being very, you know, focused on a specific stage. What's one thing that you would change about venture capital? You know, I'd like to see probably more diversity in general. I think the more different views you have at a firm, the better you're able to understand, especially I think in consumer, consumer trends, consumer problems. I might have one point of view and somebody else has a completely different background from myself. I might not be the core customer for a certain product. I think really at all, diversity really at all levels. So I think diversity of age is really important, especially in consumer, diversity of gender, race, geography, socioeconomic backgrounds, uh, et cetera. Because I think, you know, the more perspectives you have, the better you can understand 
different consumer issues. Like, you know, I think a good example might be, you know, especially in consumer, you're looking at where are the next big trends coming from? It tends to be from younger generations. And if you have a, you know, a firm of a bunch of, you know, 40 or 50 year olds, they're not going to be as in tune with like kind of what's coming up with Gen Z. You know, they might have a lot of experience on how to evaluate a business model or other things like that. So I think having a diverse group of people, I think, I think all firms should have some level of that. I think there's probably not enough of that right now, but I think, I think it's gotten better over, over time. And I think it'll continue to improve, but I think that's, you know, an area I'd like to see, I guess, more change overall. No, totally. I think that's a really, really great point. What's one book that inspired you personally, one book that inspired you professionally? Yeah, so personally, I, one book that I really like is uh, The Wisdom of the Enneagram. And I don't know if you've seen kind of the, there's nine areas of, it's basically of personality or kind of psychological traits. And for me, it was really good just to, we've done even exercises with this as, a, as our team around kind of self-reflection, you know, offering a better understanding of yourself and others around you. And I just think it's kind of an interesting concept and, you know, there's different variations of this. And then I think professionally, one that I've really liked is Trillion Dollar Coach, which is the book about uh, Bill Campbell, who is the former Intuit CEO, but coached to a lot of different Silicon Valley execs, like I think Steve Jobs and the Google founders. And what I liked about that book is really, you know, his level of kind of respect or friendship uh, for people and just like the power of building relationships. And I think as an investor, it's motivated me also on just building good relationships with founders. And that doesn't mean you have to be best friends with them. It's having hard conversations when you need to have them, but building trust with, you know, with the people around you. And I think he clearly, you know, did a great job of that. So it's basically kind of like a biography of, of him. You're the first person to bring that book up. Really excited to add that to our list as well as your other book. They both sound amazing. My final question for you is what's one piece of advice that you have for founders? Yeah, so I think what I see sometimes from founders is they have some idea or they'll reach out and they have, you know, something that's I'm not so sure they're solving a problem. So I think it's, you know, find a pain point for consumers and focus on solving that problem. You know, I mentioned earlier the importance, I think, surrounding yourself with a team of complementary people uh, that have strengths to fill in your weaknesses. And then finally, you know, I, I said this earlier too, but like go into a business that you love and have a passion for. You know, entrepreneurship can be a slog. It can take a long time. So, you know, what I found is people working on something that they love will persevere through the difficult times. And, you know, they typically are the ones that find the best outcomes. So I think, you know, in summary, like work on something that you love, find people that are complementary to yourself and, you know, make sure that what you're working on is, you know, solving some sort of problem for a consumer. How do you analyze as an investor how large a pain point could be? Like if an entrepreneur comes with you and says, I want to solve, this is the problem that I want to solve for. How do you analyze first, like how real the problem is and the overall opportunity? I tend not to like to see decks that have a giant TAM slide. I'd rather see something that somebody's creating like a new category. They have an innovative, innovative way of thinking about building something. And it's something that it's me. If it's obvious to everybody, then, you know, it's, it's not necessarily going to be a, a good business. And there's probably a lot of competitive companies already doing it. And I like to hear a personal story. Like a personal story is like, I personally came across this problem, you know, many times. It's really bothered me, and I, I had to find a way to solve it. And here's the innovative way that I've done it, or here's why I think, you know, there's these different factors that are happening, and this is why the market is now headed this way, and we're going to create this new company that's going to, you know, define a new category or something like that. So I, I like a personal story, and I like kind of a, thinking about things differently than just saying, here's a big TAM, and here's what we'll, we'll take 1% of that market. And all of a sudden, we'll be a big company. I think it's, you know, thinking a bit outside of the box on, on what you're trying to solve. 
No, totally, totally. No, I appreciate that too, just because as you say, if the problem is so obvious, then there's automatically, I mean, there's probably so many competitors already out there. That's a really good note to end on. Brandon, thank you so much for your time. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah, thank you for having me. You know, excited to keep listening to the podcast. Super kind, super kind. Thanks so much for coming on. And there you have it. It was such a pleasure chatting with Brandon. I hope you all enjoyed it. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host, Mike, on Twitter at at Mike Gelb and also follow for episode announcements at Consumer VC. Thanks for listening, everyone.